I think we all recognize we're standing at a crossroads in the history of humanity. Um, we face unprecedented rising temperatures, a rapidly narrowing window to prevent a breach of the critical 1.5 degree card rail. Last week, uh, the daily average temperature uh, surpassed two degrees above pre-industrial level for the first time. Our politicians often see these uh, temperature levels as uh, as targets, and they must not only reach, but surpass, rather than critical guardrails that are, are there to protect our pe people and our planet. That is the executive director of the UK-based organisation War on Want, Asad Raymond introduced the online event COP28 and the fight for climate justice. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. It's so great to have you along. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now let's hear the whole of this War on Want virtual event. We're going to bring there huge amounts of wealth and knowledge and analysis at what's at stake and hopefully lead, uh, lift the lid a little bit on what different countries want to co see coming out of the COP. And of course, for all of us, what it will mean in the struggle for climate justice. Um, so let me just quickly introduce our expert panel. We're going to have Nathan Thankey uh, from the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, who will speak about the the big focus on energy, but also hopefully also touch on, on a little bit what the hell is the COP28 and what's on the table. Annabella Rosenberg, uh, formerly of the ITUC, a long-standing comrade who now leads Can International's work on Just Transition, and Tyrone Scott uh, from War on Want, uh, on what this means for the UK and how we can, as activists for the climate just movement, dial uh, to what is dial forward to what is needed. My name is Asad Rahman. I'm the Executive Director of War and Want and also a member of the COP28 Coalition and the Climate Justice Coalition. Um, I think we all recognise we're standing at a crossroads in the history of humanity. Um, we face unprecedented rising temperatures, a rapidly narrowing window to prevent a breach of the critical 1.5 degree card rail. Last week, uh, the daily average temperature uh, surpassed two degrees above pre-industrial level for the first time. Our politicians often see these uh, temperature levels as uh, as targets, and they must not only reach, but surpass, rather than critical guardrails that are, are there to protect our pe people and our planet. And of course, as we all know, breaching the two degrees will result in extremes of heat, um, that UNEP says is about 5.6 times the average temperature, two and a half times the number of droughts, uh, etc. And the list goes on. The UN Secretary General said limiting temperatures well below two degrees would require tearing out the poison root of the climate crisis, uh, fossil fuels. And the latest UNEP, which is the United Nations Environment Programme report this week, said we're currently on a trajectory of 2.9 degrees boiling. And that is if every pledge is being met. And that will require emission reductions of nearly half by 2030. Yet our own government and those of other rich developed countries 
are planning massive expansions of fossil fuels, oil and gas, 55% by just five of the richest countries. That will blow the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees three times over and continue to hide behind the catastrophic net zero 2050 mantra and then the reliance on deadly and dangerous technologies, many of which don't even work to try and suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And at the same time, promoting carbon markets and offsets so that they can continue to pollute and colonize what's left of the remaining carbon budget. But as we know, the climate is not only in inequality in itself, but it amplifies all other existing inequalities. And we can see that in the climate modeling that not only in itself reinforces inequality, but widens it with per capita income in the global south expected to grow only from $1,000 to $3,000, whilst that, while those in the global north will see a doubling of per capita income uh, to nearly $68,000. But behind that, of course, is a story also of inequality within societies as well as be between societies. And you may have seen the latest Oxfam report, which demonstrates the 1% who are now, in the words of the former UN Special Rapporteur Peter Alston, are the ones that are creating this climate apartheid where the rich cause the crisis and then use their wealth to seek safety whilst leaving the poor to burn or drown. But we are also already facing a global crisis of inequality which has made the rich super rich and the super rich obscenely wealthy, uh, whilst working people are poorer in real terms than they have been. And now um, it's become even more apparent as we uh, are in the midst of what has been called a global cost of living crisis, but more aptly should be called a global cost of greed crisis, um, where for every one dollar uh, earned by working people, the millionaires are amassing something like two point three million dollars, and the billionaires uh, about uh, two two billion a day. Um, the Oxfam report uh, has well laid out that ten percent of the global population own uh, global wealth, um, own over seventy six percent of all global wealth, and and it's now clear that tackling the climate crisis also requires us to tackle global wealth and global inequality. And, and, and that means also a focus on the global financial architecture of neoliberalism, of tax, trade and debt that has put profit ahead of people and planet. But as the IPCC said after they published the AR6 report, the big climate science report, we need a compact on poverty and climate. But I think we all recognise we need much more than that. We need to address our collapsing ecosystems. We need to address the model of extractivism and exploitation that has breached nine out of the 11 planetary limits. And of course, we have to address the system, both historic and current, that's often we call a name racialized capitalism, which from slavery right through to colonialism and to now to neoliberalism, has always viewed some people as disposable and some parts of the world as sacrifice zones. And, and we can see that with the proposals that are being put forward, particularly by rich developed countries for industrial strategies based on a new wave of green colonialism and material extraction, um, simply to open up a new market, a new frontier, whilst continuing uh, to uh, 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 pollute with fossil fuels. And of course, as we head into COP28, if we ever needed to see the reality of that disposability of people, we can see it 
in our TV screens as we view what's going on in occupied Palestine, in Gaza and in West Bank, where the very question that some lives are deemed more worthy than others is playing out and crimes against humanity are being carried out, not only with impunity, but with the active support of many of the same rich developed countries who are overwhelmingly responsible for the climate crisis. Those that uh, uh, claim, those very same rich countries claim, of course, um, that they're unable to provide climate finance. And that is going to be one of the issues at COP28, but seem to have no problem uh, finding the money to be able to pay for bombs um, uh, to eviscerate the Palestinian people. So when we look at Gaza, we can see very much the question uh, and a fundamental question now, I think, for many of us. What does it mean for multilateralism? What does it mean for a rules-based system? What does it mean when we say that humanitarian and human rights law should evenly apply? How are we deemed expendable? And what does that mean in the when we look at the climate crisis and how that violence is playing out uh, around the world? And it's why many in the climate justice movement, of course, have said we can only deliver justice when we also deliver justice for all the peoples who are being occupied and persecuted around the world, from indigenous people to the people of Palestine and Western Sahara. So we have a huge challenge in front of us, and it seems like an immense challenge. But I also want to say within this challenge, and, I, and I'm sure Annabella and, and Nathan will both touch on this, there are also immense opportunities that sit there for us to be able to transform our societies and ultimately our world. Uh, but one, but that, of course, requires us to look beyond narrow demands towards a transformative agenda. And it's agenda that um, is being fought over at the COP28. When we think about the questions around the debate around fossil fuels to the global stock take to the even the questions about the global goal on adaptation, climate finance and, of course, loss and damage um, and the Just Transition Work Programme, which many of us see as being the thread that holds so much of what already uh, exists, but also uh, the opportunity for us to go beyond the system in which we're in towards a more profound reckoning that recognises that everybody has the right to be able to live with dignity and in harmony with the planet. So less from me, I'm going to now hand over first to Nathan uh, from the Fossil Fuel uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty. Over to you, Nathan. Thanks very much, Asad. Um, I'm going to share a couple of slides just so you don't have to look at my face for the whole time. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and thanks everyone for joining. 10 minutes is not a lot of time to be able to properly unpack uh, what the COP is. Um, so I suggest actually that if you're really interested in the background, the history, um, when we were under the guise of the uh, COP26 um, coalition, uh, we produced a, a, a video series called Boiling Point. So that's still available uh, on YouTube. Um, so you could check it out there. But yeah, just by way of a bit of background, um, so the, the COP does still... Uh, remain the, the biggest, most focused uh, moment, really, in the international political calendar uh, on climate change um, and the, all the related issues. What it really does is that it helps set the terms of debate. There's a huge narrative war that takes place um, uh, during the COP and in the run-up to and afterwards. 
but it also does have a, a real world impact. Like there are actual policies um, uh, and regulations, uh, not many, but there are some that do emerge from the from the COP um, as a decision-making space within international law. Uh, but more than that, it also uh, is a massive platform for uh, movements to to spotlight the issues um, that are of concern to us uh, in a way that we don't often get. That level of concentration of political power, of media interest um, and economic interest, uh, you know, there's not many other opportunities like that. Um, this, more than any other COP, perhaps, uh, will be a major fight uh, over what are we supposed to do about fossil fuels? How do we transition away from fossil fuels? Um, the fact that it is being hosted by the United Arab Emirates uh, helps that. Um, and the fact that the presidency is also the UAE, um, uh, first of all, that the COP president himself, uh, his other job is as the uh, chairman for ADNOC, so the uh, basically uh, a national oil company. Um, but uh, in his spare time, he has been uh, the COP president. And he's also taken a stance, which is that he will be um, not a passive uh, president. He's, he's very active. He's very out there. Um, but obviously his other role has, has brought into to question this, this whole theme of fossil fuels in a way that um, we haven't seen before. So the conversation around how do we phase down the demand as well as the supply, really critically, of all fossil fuels, um, that, that's, that is probably the conversation for this COP. We've already seen pretty significant changes even in the rhetoric from the presidency, um, you know, going a little bit away from initial, uh, uh, I would say, reticence to talk about fossil fuels to now talking about it as uh, the, the phase down and out as being inevitable um, from an initial uh, emphasis on just the emissions uh, rather than the actual fossil fuels themselves. So there, there is this initial idea that they could present, um, and they're still kind of on this train, but not fully because they've been pushed so much. But this idea that you could just uh, decouple fossil fuel production from CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels through technologies like carbon capture and storage and potentially geoengineering, basically a, a kind of insane idea um, that uh, doesn't really have any bearing in reality. So yeah, this COP will be a media political policy battleground um, against the fossil fuel industry who are going to be there very well organized. I think there was um, reports coming out today from the Kick Big Polluters Out campaign showing the extent to which the fossil fuel industry is uh, resourced and is organized and is active in the talks. Uh, and so we have to go there in an organized fashion as a climate movement um, to meet them on the side of battle. Uh, Feel a bits of background very briefly. Um, you know, the, the Paris Agreement was important back in 2015 in setting a target of, uh, as Assad said, that has, you know, that we're trying our very best to surpass uh, of um, 1.5 degrees warming. Um, and the UNFCCC has remained a really critical, um, you know, forum for the reasons I mentioned, uh, but also for sort of um, taking stock of progress towards those goals of the Paris Agreement. This year will be a particularly important 
um, uh, milestone in, in, in that uh, journey because we have what is called the global stock take, uh, which is designed explicitly from the Paris Agreement to, to do that, to, to, as it says on the tin, take stock of progress um, towards the, the goals of the Paris Agreement and give some guidance on how we could maybe, you know, avoid completely failing uh, on, on all those goals. Um, so the NCCC is important, but it's pretty clear by now, at least to us within the, the, the treaty initiative, that after 30 plus years of these negotiations going on, we need some other ideas. The Paris Agreement needs to be complemented with new mechanisms for international governance uh, on the issue of fossil fuels specifically. Uh, we've had, took us 26 cops to even mention fossil fuels. We got a mention in Glasgow. Uh, all of a sudden, um, but the mention was in a what would they call a cover decision. It was not in any operative uh, sense meaningful. It was more normative, um, and we are nowhere near a conversation where we would be talking about um, you know more phased down plans um, for each country and and leaving it in the ground and and the whole idea of extraction equity. Uh, as as championed by many in civil society, that that's not really what the COP is set up for. We think that the process of um, even amending the nationally determined contributions that each country is pledged to to the to the world um, through the Paris Agreement, which the global stock take is aiming to guide, um, that that uh, the, the phase out of fossil fuels it hasn't happened in that so far and is unlikely to happen. Um, in that in the future. So we're really on this whole idea that while there are, and I'll get into them, some really important reasons to engage in the UNFCCC and in this COP and that we can win, we also need to think about um, a bigger picture beyond that. Um, but yeah, just to sort of top line on this COP with regards to the energy package or with regards to uh, fossil fuels more specifically, as I said, they're center stage now. Um, there does seem to be a building consensus around phase-out language um, at the COP that's now being coupled uh, in an interesting pivot from many of the, 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 the major polluters uh, to uh, a renewable energy target. So that's going to be on the agenda as well. The tripling of um, uh, you know, the, the renewable global rene renewable energy um, capacity. Uh, but we know ourselves that if we don't um, have renewable energy that's actually pushing out fossil fuels that we're just adding to the problem and there are of course um mineral um uh, well issues around uh minerals uh, related to renewable energies that we can't also overlook we have to bring down global demand of energy uh, while at the same time increasing access to energy for the billion or so people that don't have adequate or, or or any access. So beyond this, we need at the COP to see more than just declarations and, and, and rhetoric around, um, around the fossil fuel issue. Uh, we actually need to start seeing more concretely um, the, you know, uh, plans to not just phase out existing, but start by maybe stop making like the problem worse. So a, a, a ban or a, the pathway towards um, no new fossil fuels. Um, and we think that the treaty is a, a way to do this. I think that we could look at maybe a couple of different scenarios on fossil fuels. This will all um, play into the sort of 
end game, um, horse trading, whatever you want to call it, around all of the other issues, because the COP is uh, never just about one issue in particular. Uh, it's about everything across the agenda in adaptation, um, in finance, which is always a key, you know, evergreen um, struggle, uh, as well as this year, the, the loss and damage fight, which was very, very live in Egypt in COP27. And there was a massive breakthrough, but the past year has has seen since a lot of reneging and backsliding and, you know, really nefarious kind of meddling from rich countries to, to escape, wriggle out of that. So this will all depend on how the overall package shakes out, but you can sort of see maybe a, a, a reasonably decent outcome on fossil fuels at COP would be one that does recognize the UNEP's production gap report, which shows how much countries are aiming to expand uh, production of fossil fuels. And that's mostly North America, by the way, um, no matter where they want to point the finger. Um, it also would need to recognize the full life cycles of fossil fuels. It's not just one point in the production line, it's the whole way through. Um, would also recognize the, the, as I said, the need to end expansion as, as a first step. Um, we have to bring in the element of equity. We're not going to get anywhere um, if we don't. It's just a non-starter. Um, we also have to think about and 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 work against all of these major loopholes um, that uh, that the polluters are so um, in favor of littering into all of the decisions. So there'd be a package around, um, you know, doing all of that that would be reasonably good. There's probably a couple of other packages that are less good. Maybe one that's kind of like a one step forward, two steps back, or maybe just three steps sideways. I don't know where we sort of bank the existing language around fossil fuels that all fossil fuels have to be phased down in an un all unabated fossil fuels have to be phased down. Um, so if they could sort of build on that by dropping some loophole somewhere, um, you know, it might be good, but if it's not paired with um, equity, if it's not linked actually to the the technical negotiations, if it's just a statement at the start, you know, it's kind of meaningless. Um, and then an even worse outcome, you know, would be just reiterating uh, previously agreed language, um, not dealing with the loopholes, not dealing with the urgent need to end expansion of fossil fuels um, and not linking it in any way to the agenda of the negotiations going forward. That would all be pretty disastrous um, for, for movements. Um, so I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. I'll end it here um, because in, in the interest of time, but yeah, happy to answer questions on the fossil fuel um, issue and try to answer questions on what COPs are like more generally as well, if there are any. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, so let's move over straight to Annabella, uh, who has been uh, co helping coordinate uh, not just CAN, but broader civil society around the Just Transition Work Programme um, and the coming together of social movements and the labour movement around the common vision. Annabella, over to you. Thanks so much, and uh, thanks for the invitation, um, for for being with you all. I mean, I, I see lots of different 
places in the in the UK and it's, it's kind of fun. Some of them I even have family there and I also see like someone from the United Auto Workers I mean present in the call. My congratulations for your win and your effort. I think it was very inspiring to see all those I mean, work has just, I mean, striking, I mean, for, for so long um, in the US uh, and even better because you won. Um, but basically what I wanted to share with you um, is some of the developments on the just transition conversation internationally, because this has been with us uh, for quite some time, even part of the uh, what you were working on in terms of the COP26 coalition, because of the work of many groups in Scotland, uh, the conversations about fossil fuel phase out having been in, in society and in movements um, for quite some time. So let's start by saying that the United Nations conversation on just transition is not our conversation on just transition, like on anything else. So I would like to start a little bit more with what our ideas about what could be pushed in that space as what as Nathan did with with the fossil fuel phase out but then give you a sense also of how we are trying to figure out a way to bring all of those ideas and visions into a space that is necessarily much more narrow and where the winds um, tend to be almost tactical more than than substantive in terms of changing um, the systems of oppression that today are are taking the world into a pretty grim space. So I first I wanted to start saying that we are seeing um, in, in the Climate Action Network, but also across the board in civil society, I mean, the, the importance of escalating the work on justice and on climate justice. I, I mean, and we're seeing this in the proposal for having um, a discussion on the fossil fuel phase out, that is not any discussion on a fossil fuel phase out, is a just and equitable uh, fossil fuel phase out that comes with lots of conditions and ideas about how to make that equitable, how to make that fair. At the same time, we all know that unless we are able to, um, I mean, like turn up the volume massively in terms of the social ambition of uh, governments when thinking about that transition so that we are having communities and workers with us, um, we know that the opposition, I mean, to those kinds of ideas are going to grow and are going to be utilized by the ones that are just happy on keeping the status quo as it is. On top of that, because we could say, well, we need just transition because of a political economy issue. We would never win uh, if we don't get uh, workers and communities on board. Of course, that's true. But there is an additional element, which is which kind of vision of the future do we have for society when we are pushing environmental action? And I think ensuring that we are carrying with us as movements the responsibility to take steps and to move as close as possible to a situation where people, as, as I said, can live in dignity within planetary boundaries is our responsibility. We need to convey this message in which justice and environment cannot be separated anymore. I mean, there's no way, I mean, like from whatever we are looking at it. Despite that, there are many frames out there. And I come from a country that just elected an absolutely furious, crazy person uh, in Argentina. I mean, you can see that some of those frames are still being mobilized. The idea that growth goes against environmental protection, against environmental um, labor rights. So we are in that context. That means that, of course, 
the just transition conversation needs to be pushed at the national level, at the local level. So trying to articulate how we get to the society we want, but also what are the means by which we could get there together, but also internationally. Because some of the um, uh, trends that we are observing in the world right now is that the concept of just transition of course, it's growing more and more groups, but also more and more governments and more and more international institutions are using this concept to the point that it's being watered down to simply, I mean, like uh, qualifying uh, any sort of energy plan without even minimum standards when it comes to inclusion, to rights, um, to different uh, components of what we think are critical for just transition. So. We are seeing this with the Just Energy Transition partnerships that have been mobilized by the developed countries, specific emerging economies. We are also seeing it where international financial institutions are drawing their plans about energy. But we are likely to see also this in many other sectors. I mean, for the moment, energy has been the focus, but we know that whatever um, partnerships or formats we are seeing with energy are going to be reproduced in many other sectors that we know need to change uh, and go through massive changes um, to respond to the climate emergency. So there is this cooptation uh, of the just transition concept going on. And we also see a context in which there is a huge amount of countries where the dependency over polluting industries is huge and have a very, very limited fiscal space to protect their workers, their communities in the transition, but also to think about how they diversify their economy away from extractive industries. So if we put those two things together, it gives us a context where we need something, I mean, that could change that dynamic that is basically taking us into an extremely unambitious, uh, vicious circle um, of, of yeah, low ambition, low commitment, low justice, and more loss and damage just to go back to the other um, big component uh, of what we are expecting from the COP. In Cannes, we have started working, bring, I mean, like bringing together a lot of the work that has been done across the board by many groups in the past years, including from trade unions on just transition, and trying to structure what we think are not the maximum standards of the transition, but at least some minimum components that must be there if someone is to claim that is developing a just transition approach. And these are not necessarily a surprise to you. I mean, like this uh, has to do with the respect um, for uh, human labor, indigenous people's rights. This has to do to the inclusion of workers that trade unions and communities at all levels of decision-making when we are planning the transition. This has to do with social protection that we know must be strengthened already in the global north when we are thinking about unemployment rights and when we are thinking about um, uh, retirement. But if you imagine in the global south where most of those provisions have not even been created, we know that those need to be strengthened to accompany communities in the transition. We are also thinking about anticipating um, all the, the economic and social impacts of, of some of those policies. And 
an element that is often um, underlooked is the whole dimension also of ecosystem rate restoration. We know that the um, the lands and waters that have been used by the uh, fossil fuel industry and more generally by polluting industries um, are left uh, basically um, with no life. Uh, and the conditions in which communities are asked to live when those companies live are 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 quite difficult and and bad. I mean, in terms of health conditions and even access to nature and a clean environment, which is a human right. So, we also put under this umbrella of just transition the effort that needs to be made to restore um, those ecosystems. And finally, the whole support for economic diversification. Um, for as I was saying at the beginning. I think like one of the key points that we want to make in the um, this year in the UNFCCC is that we want all of those things to happen everywhere. We want a just transition to happen everywhere. But unless we move from a frame of competition and aggression to a frame of cooperation across countries, and in particular, international cooperation to figure out what are the agreements that are needed to accompany countries in their transition, what are the new technology partnerships that we need to create so that countries in the global south can produce and create jobs, um, I mean, with technologies that have been shared with them, I mean, clean um, technologies. And I'm not talking necessarily super techy things. I'm talking about double glazing, for example, that today is not accessible for most of the countries in the global south. We need to think about what are the financial support mechanisms. We also need to think about other ways uh, in which that support can be can be sent. This is basically what we are asking in that Just Transition Work Program, that right now um, is just going to start a conversation about its scope, so what it's going to cover, and also what are its objectives. And for us, of course, it's going to be more a process fight where we are going to be asking for this work program at least to deliver decisions, to give itself a mandate to deliver decisions and to incorporate within the scope the international cooperation between countries. My final point is that almost irrespective of what happens with this just transition work program that we are really going to give it a go and, and trying to win as much as possible for, for workers, for communities and, and, and for us all is that the COP will never deliver the vision that we need. That will always be, uh, and, and um, uh, that's, I guess, is our collective belief as part of the climate justice movement, that will always come from the efforts that we made also as organizers, as activists, in trying to change the balance of power there. But the fact that the COP will never deliver the vision we want doesn't mean that we should not occupy that space. because when we are not there pushing for these ambitious, huge ideas that we have that many people would consider unrealistic, the ones that are occupying the space are the ones that either do not want any change to happen, or the ones that are just very happy to frame climate change in a way that uh, reinforces the role in the status quo. So uh, I think more than ever <laughs> in a world where so many bad things are going on, I think it's very important that we keep bringing to that international space and to many other international fora, the bold ideas that are coming from movements that can give a fighting chance to the climate crisis to be addressed. Over. Thank you, Annabella. And I think that point about how important it is for us to have build power, but also build power with the visions and strategies behind it to uh, 
as uh, Milton Friedman uh, very famously said, uh, our job is to um, keep our policies and ideas alive until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. And that's very much what's driven the climate justice movement for decades and uh, and along the way, I've made huge gains in terms of bringing some of those perspectives. Uh, we would not be having the kind of conversations we're having at the COP without the power of movements, whether it's around loss and damage, adaptation, and just transition. These are all came from the work that people did on the outside to force that agenda. You're with Climate Conversations, listening to an event by War on Want entitled COP28 and the Fight for Climate Justice. Let's see the rest of that online event. So I'm going to turn to our final speaker, Tyrone. Um, he's also going to speak a little bit about uh, what the plans are here in the UK, I think. Over to you, Ty. Great, thank you. I'm just going to share my screen as well. Um, so hopefully you can see um, what's well, relatively basic uh, presentation, but similarly it means that you don't just have to look at, look at my face too. Um, and I'll look to try and keep it within, within the 10 minutes and, and hopefully we'll still have time for some, some good questions. So, yeah, we'll be looking to provide some of the UK context and also what the actions will be here in the UK during um, COP28 and how you all can get involved and participate and still continue this fight for, for climate justice. And I guess, first and foremost, maybe go back to what was around a year ago today um, and with the opening speech or um, the UK Prime Minister's Rishi Sunak's opening speech at COP27 in which um, he talked very tough on the climate crisis but for decades now the UK government has been saying one thing and doing another uh, as we'll know and we've said the UK was the president of the COP26 climate summit yet have continuously failed to do its fair share of action uh, instead it's expanded its fossil fuel use refused continuously to meet its climate finance targets and continuing to promote trade deals that lock in fossil fuels and other corporate interests and the UK government's reliance on oil and gas is worsening climate breakdown while driving up energy bills at home, contributing to this cost of living scandal with the poorest and most marginalised in the UK hit the hardest. You know, wealthy countries in the global north, such as the UK, who have long made big promises on tackling the climate crisis, but have so far failed to deliver the resources needed to honour them. And, you know, in, in 2010 now, 13 years ago, you know, wealthy countries agreed, including the UK, you know, agreed to provide $100 billion annually in climate finance by three years ago in 2020. And this goal has still not been met. So it really is time that the UK and other rich industrialized global global north countries take responsibility for fueling the climate crisis and pay its fair share in climate finance and facilitate a genuine just transition or justice transition that protects workers protects the climate and protects communities across the global south but instead of this the uk is rolling back on all of its climate commitments you know in september of this year our uk prime minister rishi sunak announced on the same day as the un secretary general's climate ambition summit that, that this government was backtracking on key climate policies and weakening the UK's climate policies will make it even harder for, for us and for the UK to meet its legally binding climate targets, will cost UK households billions of pounds and will create unnecessary, is creating unnecessary and damaging confusion, confusion for businesses during already turbulent time. And it's deeply, deeply irresponsible when all countries need to be accelerating climate action. Um, as I imagine we'll all know here, you know, in June of this year, 
the, the UK government approved over 100 new North Sea oil and gas licenses, locking us into fossil fuel dependencies for decades to come. And we are already, as the UK, the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe. And the government-backed Rosebank oil field, uh, which is the slightly pixelated picture on the right, would emit more CO2 than 28 of the poorest countries combined. So we are really not the leader uh, and the climate leader that the uh, UK government can continuously looks to profess. And as we move into the COP28 climate summit in the UAE, there are campaigns. Obviously, we have our campaigns here, but it's interesting that a group of MPs currently are pressuring Rishi Sunak to, to lobby other countries to commit to a phase out of fossil fuels at the COP28 climate negotiations with over 50 cross-party MPs and peers who have written to the Prime Minister with demands that they see as critical in ensuring that the, the climate summit in Dubai is the moment that current and future generations need it to be. So it'll be really interesting to see if and how that is took into negotiations next month. But in the meantime, we have to ensure that we do our bit too to demand climate justice. The Global Day of Action and the Day of Action here in the UK um, is going to be on the 9th of December, um, you know, organised and facilitated from the Climate Justice Coalition, which is made up of over 100 groups here um, in the UK of climate justice NGOs, grassroots groups and movements who are fighting for uh, climate justice and for an equitable and fair future. And the reason this is so important, as we, uh, as everyone so rightly outlined, is because um, we are facing climate catastrophe and a, a growing, growing case of inequality. Quality. In 2022, five oil and gas giants made combined profits of over £150 billion, and the world's 700 biggest companies made more than £1 trillion on the back of soaring energy prices, increasing interest rates. And energy prices in Britain are already double what they were two years ago, while wages and benefits lag far behind uh, rises in the cost of living. So what will we do about it? And firstly, we'll rise in our communities. You know, we'll replace the destructive, expensive fossil fuel economy with a real alternative, one that puts people and nature first in all of our communities while creating secure, well-paying, unionized jobs. And we look to try and take advantage of to take advantage of cheap renewable energies to cut bills, keep everyone warm through winter by insulating our homes and build accessible, affordable public transport to link our communities and cut disease from air pollution will rise across the country and will call out our leaders' climate hypocrisy. As we've said before, the UK say they are a world leader on climate, but the actions speak louder than words. And we won't let a tiny club of leaders and industrialists in wealthy countries ramp up fossil fuel production while lecturing the rest of the world on climate action. And we'll rise on a global level. We'll stand with communities in the global south who are suffering from the climate crisis, which they did not create, and which does the greatest damage to countries already burdened by the legacy of colonialism and unjust colonial debt. You know, rich nations must provide urgent climate finance and reparations for loss and damage. And we won't allow climate breakdown to be used to, to bind these countries further into debt or create further exploitation, nor in these times of incre increased crisis and conflict will we allow migrants and the most vulnerable to be used as scapegoats. And this is one of the key things as well, as we are in an increased time of crisis and an increased time of conflict. And our sort of movements for global justice is, is often, and global solidarity is often beyond just the climate. 
It's a struggle against colonialism, against racism, against imperialism, and it's against more and more sacrifice, sacrifice zones across the world. And that's whether it's places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is turned into sacrifice zones so we can fuel our green transitions here in the global north, fueling more green colonialism, as we heard earlier on in this talk, as we seek our transition materials to enable what would be an unjust transition, or whether that's the allowance from the majority of global north governments to allow the ongoing human rights abuses of the the Palestinian people and destruction of their lands. Our work and our movement is about global solidarity and recognizing and solidifying that black and brown lives, the lives of the most marginalized and deeply affected communities from all of our global crises, that these lives matter just as much as here in the global north. So our day of action is not just about the climate or the environment it's about justice and ensuring that any fight for climate justice is embedded with anti-racist principles it's embedded with the cause and echoes from the migrant justice movement and that our movements for climate justice include our movements fighting against the destruction of lands livelihoods and communities and this is about building a movement of movements and that's how we we'll look to win uh, this fight against global injustice. And we are mindful that the 9th of December, and right now there are weekly uh, Palestine demonstrations and anything that happens on this day will not be an attempt to, to supersede them. Uh, you know, we're in communication with the organizers of the, the weekly demonstrations and we'll ensure that any actions that take place in the 9th will, will both supplement and then feed into existing marches for a ceasefire and for a free Palestine, which may be happening on that day. And again, just trying to be quick, so I was through, but, you know, this day of action here in the UK, as we as we speak about, is not just an action within itself. It is part of a global day of action organised by the COP28 coalition, which is a coalition which brings together individuals and organisations to amplify the power of collective actions in the lead up to and during COP28 in the fight for climate justice in, and in the fight for system change. And I'll whiz through a bit and any of this information we'll we'll send around in the emails afterwards, all the links and, and the, the topics that we've spoken about here today. But, you know, the, the rationale about the day of action, as it says in the slides, provide that critical opportunity to raise our demands and escalate our fight for climate justice and for system change. And, and to ensure that December 9th is the, the high point of this period and there'll be coordinated actions all across the UK, all across the world and at and inside the COP venue is, as well. And just to, to whiz through again, the objective of this day is to really to weave and amplify the calls and demands of different climate movements and sectors, demonstrate the strength and the determination of the global climate justice and increasingly the global justice movement in our intersectional struggle for justice, expose the failures and schemes and generate intense pressure against governments, corporations and other institutions at the COP28 negotiations and attract new people and forces into our movements for climate justice. And bringing it back to the UK, this day of action that we're taking place on the 9th of December, please do visit the climatejustice.uk website and there will be already over 25 locations and more increasing every day of actions that will be happening. If there's not one in your area, you can organise one and there's details to get in contact and how to do so. But already there's actions from London to Edinburgh and Durham in Aberystwyth and Nottingham and Swansea all across the UK. And this is not just about one singular day of action. It's about building a movement of movements, as we said before. It's about continuing our fight for climate justice at COP and beyond. And it's about sending a message to world leaders and our leaders here in the UK that we will continue this fight for an intersectional climate justice that values the lives and livelihoods of the most marginalized and affected communities. 
And just to finish there, um, so we have time for a Q and A. You know, as we're looking at this day of action, is is not a singular day. We need to continue our rise, and we'll do so. And one example of this is is a plug for our own event, um, which will be happening on the twenty fourth of February two thousand and twenty four, and still we rise, which is the War and One Festival of Solidarity and Resistance. And again, these QR codes may be quite small. You can scan them right here to get more information to book book your place. But we'll send out the the links again in the follow email with our with our recording of today but this will be a, a radical one-day festival of panel discussions workshops and training bringing together social justice movements from all over the world world to, to forge global solidarity inspire collective action and build solutions to turn crisis into justice and we'll hear from and stand shoulder to shoulder with activists and justice movements from across the global south and north from indigenous communities defending their lands from destructive mining corporations to garment workers taking on low wages and poor conditions in the exploitative fashion industries to palestinians demanding an end to colonization and trade unions challenging amazon's tax dodging this is about building a movement of movements on now today on the 9th of december moving into 2024 you know how we'll win is is in solidarity and in global global solidarity and collective action and um i'll look to end there but yeah please get in contact for any more information on any of these things and we'll send out all the details too um in the next in the next sort of day or two after after this session yeah thanks uh ty just very conscious of time sorry we ran over a little bit um so I know some questions people, thank you panel, have started to answer in the q and I wonder whether we can uh, just pick up maybe a couple. Uh, so I can either say the couple or you can look and just try and answer. I'll give you all a couple of minutes each. Um, and there's a question, so somebody was asking about policy demands. We will send out a more detailed sort of policy uh, position paper, which will explain all the different issues that are taking place around what's the issues around loss and damage, what's taking place in the global stock take, what, what developed countries are trying to achieve in terms of their what the challenges and problems are of, of simply adopting renewable energy targets and energy efficiency targets. If there's no question about equity and if there's no question about finance and technology, it simply becomes a means for the global north to be able to dominate uh, what they see as the new economy and be able to sell to the developing countries. And we saw that model during the COVID pandemic with the vaccine apartheid. We're seeing the same model being rolled out in terms of around climate technologies. Uh, the challenges about also how we answer that of being lifting and making uh, green technologies, uh, public goods, uh, so that they can be, as, as Annabella said, um, can be uh, uh, accessed by every country and so we can have a just and equitable transition rather than the unequal transition that is being put on the table. Um, also questions around in terms of what the questions around climate finance, we know there's a big debate uh, both about the existing climate finance pledge not being met, but then the new quantifiable goal that's been devised in 2025. We'll set out all of those so you don't need to take it, it'll come with the recording of the of the uh, we decided probably not best to go into all the techie detail but for those that want it that will be provided so i'm going to go uh, uh in slightly different order annabella do you have uh, any closing couple of minutes just on any of the questions that you would like to pick up yeah there were there were a lot of questions and some i i tried to answer in writing probably just one in terms of the um 
the freedom of speech and our ability to to impact and influence governments because I think those two are a little bit different. One is, and I think it was Nathan in the chat. I mean, like uh, I think in the UN, I think we have a certain number of rules that indeed allow us to keep bringing our issues and and I think well. In general, I mean, that space is relatively protected. I think the issue goes a little bit more in terms of what does it mean in terms of mobilization and pressure on countries vis-a-vis -vis the outcomes of the COP. And I think that's what makes national demonstrations on the Global Day of Action particularly important, because I don't think governments care a lot about what we in the corridors of the COP uh, do. <laughs> what they do care, it's about the pressure in their capitals. And I think like the cost of climate inaction remains extremely low uh, from a government perspective. So probably I, I would just conclude on the fact that we need to figure out a way in which we keep escalating uh, the pressure uh, in all possible ways so that we are we are ahead. And, um, and this is whether we are in a country where there is extremely constrained uh, public space or in countries that look um, a bit, uh, I mean, like, yeah, with more freedom, but where we know the um, the repression can go also very fast, depending on what's the tone and what is our ask, uh, as we are also seeing on the crushing of Palestinian activists um, in the in the global north or or in many other topics uh, about environmental activism more generally and the criminalization of of protest there. So yeah, probably my encouragement to massively join the the global day of action and 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 be many many in the in the UK as that has said over thanks Annabella and uh, Nathan do you want to pick up any that either you've answered or uh, you'd like to focus on uh yeah sure I mean so, some I'm just reading some of the comments they're quite funny um but to answer some of the questions yeah I mean look look there's there's a plethora of specific asks like there's no shortage of specific asks I don't think our our problem is that we don't have ideas and we don't have interventions into the policy, um, that we don't have experts with incredible background knowledge on all of these issues who, you know, could could really be implementing things. That's that's not the issue here. The issue is um, is principally one of power, um, and that we don't have it. In, in particular, we don't really have state power. Uh, we have maybe where we're trying to build uh, people power, popular power. Um, but yeah, I mean, may maybe a, a, a challenge that we've had um, is, is harnessing that popular power behind a smaller set of demands or, or being more effective and precise and focused with when we have um, and, and make certain demands. I think that last the last COP, was a good example actually of a movement coming together, picking its time, picking its place, um, marshalling its forces for a breakthrough on loss and damage, um, which if you've been following the COP for a long time, you would have thought even a few years ago would have been impossible. Uh, so it, it shows that you know things can move very quickly when the conditions are right. Um, I would suggest that, you know, the, previously I would have suggested that this year, you know, was ripe for fossil fuels being the sort of singular demand. But 
it's not actually simple, right? Like it's hard to get it. What's the single demand? Because ending fossil fuels as a single demand, that might be good to put on a banner. That's not a demand as such, right? Like that says nothing about what what and how um, and, and all of the, you know, complex considerations that, that go into what a just transition would, would look like. I actually think that ceasefire is probably the best single demand um, and the most necessary single demand that we should bring to the COP um, as like a moral duty. Um, of course, we all hope um, and pray and are all act actively, um, you know, doing what we can to make sure that there's a ceasefire before then. But in the likely event that there isn't, I think that would be that would be one. And then just one thing I want to say, um, I answered the question about um, you know, restrictions on free speech in UAE in, in, in text, and Annabella did too. So I actually kind of want to ask to answer this one about like how effective is a cop or not. And I again I don't think it's a simple answer. It's not a linear process. I'm equally as dismissive and skeptical of you know the folks that um are completely like the cop is a complete waste of time as i am of the people that are like oh we have the Paris agreement we're all sorted like i think it's somewhere that there's a more complicated uh story that's probably less um it's less easy to tell uh but i i would go there and i think you know like this how, how long will it take when are we going to win we're not going to win like while you're alive i'm sorry uh this is a many generations uh struggle um, and, and what we're trying to transform is so much bigger than, you know, a, a single human life that I forget about winning. Like, it's not, that's the wrong question, I would suggest. Um, and, you know, if you're tempted to fall into a kind of despair because of that, despair is just a colonization of the future. Um, so forget about that too. Cool. Ty, very conscious, last breath. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and just thinking of the questions in the, in the in the in the chat, I guess very very quickly. You know, the question from Francis about whether food issues are being um, being addressed. You know, that's I guess what comes with such a sort of plethora of issues to cover with one hour that you know, we're touching about. Absolutely. Um, you know, it will be getting brought um, both through our movements, through the work that we'll be doing, and the work that we've done in the past. Because you know, the level of disruption to, to global food production is one of the huge challenges deeply connected to you know the ever worsening climate crisis and it really illustrates how unsustainable the the current global industrial food system is and just very quickly you know we're we're talking about um you know the the degrees of global heating at the moment where we're you know fighting and fighting for 1.5 but even with 1.5 degrees of global heating it risks you know um you know, crop failure of stable stable crops in many major food producing countries in which it is peasants and farmers who are going to be most affected and their livelihoods most affected too um so again very briefly this much more on this but absolutely um is something that will be brought brought to the table um 100 at, at both the cop um from from movements um across the global struggle and through our continued work too cool and i i want to just answer maybe one of the one of the other questions out there just as we're wrapping up um there there is a lot of technical demands that we have that are of course really critical in terms of all of these areas of work um and they need to be continue and we need to continue push them in terms of the COP. But there is also a point that we have uh, failed to tell a story that engages uh, people and connects 
where people are in terms of their material conditions, particularly in the moment of multiple crises. That's why lots of us work when we talk about the just transition. We don't simply see it as like a technical transition, but it's also about the transition of the story of how do we connect climate and inequality and where people are? How do we start talking about a better life rather than less things? How do we make sure that the story of climate connects the, Christ, the right to food and the right to energy and, and living wages and make the climate crisis not something that's tangential to people's everyday existence, but very, very central. And then connect both that in the global north and the global south, connecting common demands uh, and common experiences that everybody has the right to housing. How do we envisage that fairer, more just society so that we can build those connections and those powerful movements. That's very much what we're trying to do at the, on, on February 24th. It's very much the underlying conversations around what the just transition brings to us, but also the questions about what needs to happen in terms of when we talk about the global financial architecture, that these are also about ensuring that ordinary people, no matter where they are in the global north or in the global south, you know, benefit. Uh, how do we guarantee, you know, a living wage? Well, actually, no. What do you have to tax wealth? You have to transform the way in which we tax corporations. We have to shift the power of corporations and begin to create a society where well-being and and the right to dignity become the central component of the kind of economy that we we need to have. That's a transform transformational agenda, but there is also transitional demands that are needed within that that move us closer to that agenda. And that is some of the things that are being fought out at the COP twenty eight coalition. So again, the both we need the vision, but we need the demands, but we also need the story, the story we're telling of this moment that isn't one of doom and gloom, but actually also is one of huge possibility. Um, so we'll send out a lot of that and a lot of the technical side of stuff. Um, but I think the underlying message from everybody who works around the UNFCCC and COP is that the only thing that ultimately will change and deliver the outcome, whether it's at local, national, or global level, is when our power is greater than the power of capital and those that are in, currently invested in maintaining the status quo. The only way we're going to be able to build that power is if we can connect across different movements and weave together those stories into a common agenda. Um, that's our struggle. It's our collective struggle, and uh, um, but one that I believe profoundly we can and win, and it has happened in the past, and we as ordinary people have been the engines of transformation and we will continue to be. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now you'll find some links for the War on Want and Climate Justice Coalition in the show notes. So please go there, check out those links. Now I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, I'd love you to share this podcast because it's important that we all know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. It's an existential threat and the better prepared we are, the more chance we have of surviving this ordeal. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now you stay safe, and please take care.